All right. Good morning, everyone. Uh, this is uh, our coronavirus service. It's a little bit different. If it feels different for you, it feels uh, different for us as well. Uh, I am not alone in the sanctuary. The family is here. We are a family church for the next several weeks. Uh, so they are, if anybody's worried, more than six feet apart. They are, in fact, I think about six rows apart. So uh, we are practicing safe social distancing as well for anyone uh, who might be concerned with that. But we're glad that you're up. And obviously, we had to put on our Sunday uh, clothes, but uh, you may be lounging somewhere around your house, and that's fine, but we're glad that you joined us this morning. So what we're going to do is we're going to uh, give it a trial run. We're going to pray and, and continue our study in, in Psalm 139, and then uh, and then hopefully uh, be able to stay in contact through the Word, which is always what we want to do when we gather on Sunday morning. So let's begin with a word of prayer, uh, and then we'll begin our study together. Father, we do thank you that even in the, the uncertain circumstances that life can bring, that your mercy is always with us. Your mercy provides for us, not only in our individual lives, through your word, but also uh, in our day and age through the technology that you've given to us. And so we thank you that we can spend this time together, though not physically present, which is what our hearts long for and what uh, we anticipate uh, very quickly and ask you to bring about very quickly uh, to do once again. But but we can together be around your word. And so we thank you uh, for the ability to do that. We pray for the many churches around that uh, you would, as they do their services in different ways as well, live streaming and using technology, that you would keep your people diligent to uh, not let laziness, spiritual laziness, uh, creep in and to see this merely as a vacation, but rather to uh, take the opportunity uh, that we have to uh, use whatever means we have uh, to continue some kind of fellowship together. So we ask, ask you to sustain and encourage your people in that way. And Lord, we're reminded as well that whatever happens to us, even as Paul said when he was in prison, that your word is not imprisoned. And if we're quarantined, your word is not quarantined. But we can always uh, proclaim, and we thank you for this opportunity uh, to do that uh, together as we continue our study through Psalm 139. And Father, I would pray as well for uh, those in Croatia who had the earthquake this morning. Thank you that our missionaries are there, that we support, are doing well. And we do pray for those who may have been more adversely affected in the capital of Zagreb, uh, that you would bring your people around to both minister mercy to them and uh, minister to them the greatest mercy, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to that end, Lord, we pray and we commit this time to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so if you are uh, with us, then go ahead and open up your Bibles to Psalm 139. Psalm 139, is we're going to continue our study that, uh, in this great psalm, this is now our third uh, message as we see David delighting in the attributes and the glory of God. We have broken up the psalm into two uh, 
two broad uh, titles. One is the, David's delight in God, and next, David's devotion to God. And this is the last look at David's delight in God as he experiences the attributes of God, and as he thinks about them, as he thinks about how those relate to his own life, he responds with a regenerate heart that finds joy, that finds uh, comfort. And that is in every situation that David found himself and that we find ourselves as well. It's no mystery to any of us. Obviously, we're doing things the way we are because of coronavirus. And it's had a massive impact on our world. I looked at some statistics this morning just to keep up to date and worldwide, even though the statistics vary a, a little bit, depending on who gave them, there are over 300,000 reported cases of coronavirus, and there are worldwide over 26, uh, or 26,000, or excuse me, 13,000 deaths. And in the United States, there are over 26,000 cases reported and 350 deaths. So this is, this is of course, not the worst thing that happens uh, in our world because of disease. We have 30 over 30,000 last year that died of the flu and, and many other things that claim the lives of people. But this has come upon us suddenly and it's come upon the world in a way that's uh, been attended with much chaos and havoc and certainly has changed our lifestyle and the lifestyle of many, of course, around the world. And then there are statistics that are beyond what we can calculate at this point. The, the personal cost, the economic cost, the political cost, all of these consequences that are going to come from this very unexpected events, things that were unexpected to us even just a little bit more than a week ago. And we as individual people know the consequences to our own lives and the ways that it has brought changes and that we're trying to uh, adjust to these new circumstances. And so as Christians, and particularly under the, our commitment to understanding the sovereignty and the providence of God, we ask ourselves, and many ask themselves, how are we to view God's involvement in his world in light of tragedy or in light of these monumental events that, that have so affected all of us? Where is God? Is this just something that happens and God will help us through? Or can we say that God is absolutely sovereign? He is absolutely in control in every detail of these events, even directing them in an ultimate sense for his own glory and not merely these events, but every event of history, every event since the creation of the world, every event leading up to the end of the world, and of course, in our own lives. God is, in fact, in control. Scripture makes that very clear. God is absolutely sovereign. God is never taken off guard. In fact, not only is he not taken off guard as though he knows these things, but they are a part of his divine will, his sovereign will, ultimately to fulfill his purposes for creation. This is then the providence of God. Let's begin then by reading Psalm 139, and we're going to direct our attention this morning on that particular aspect of God's glory, his providence in verses 13 through 17. But let's begin by reading the psalm together. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all of my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. 
You have enclosed me behind and before you laid your and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed and shield, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. For you formed my inward parts and you wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. And when I awake, I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. A tremendous, again, celebration of the regenerate heart's response to the nature of God. And as I noted, we first looked at David's delight in these attributes of God. Verses one through six, it was the delight in the knowledge of God. God is an infinite being. He has infinite knowledge. And that is to a believer, a great comfort. To an unbeliever, it is a means of fear. It is a means of warning. But to a believer, it is a means of rest. It is something that we take joy in, that we delight in, that we thank God for, that we find, in fact, God as our refuge, the one who knows us, the one who leads us. Next, we saw David's delight then in God's presence. That is God's infinite nature in relation to his presence. That is wherever the God is present everywhere in every place of his created universe in the fullness of his being. God is not in place in parts. God is not some part over here, some part over there, mostly here, mostly there. He is in the fullness of his being in every place at the same time. Again, for those who are outside of God's saving grace, outside of his saving presence, then it is a means of fear. It is a means of realizing that it should be that God sees us in our sin, that there is no wicked deed that is hidden from him. For a believer, again, it is a means of great comfort. It means in our darkest hour, in our most lonely times, in our most difficult circumstances, God has not left us. He is by our side as much as he was any other time. Sometimes God is, even for us, thought to be near or felt to be near because of the quality of our 
fellowship with him. And sometimes we said that he feels far away as though he's very distant from us. But that's never in terms of his spatial nearness, but only in terms of his relational nearness or distance, which God sometimes brings about as a general act of his discipline. And sometimes it is a direct result of our sin. He distances himself in order to cause us to go come to him in repentance and to seek to be restored again in our relational closeness and communion with him. And then next then, and what we'll look at this morning, is David's delight in the providence of God, the providence of God. And as we have with the others, let's begin by considering the doctrine itself, the doctrine of providence. This is a very massive uh, topic. It is a very encouraging topic, but I would, we're not going to look at that exhaustively, but I, I want to at least state the doctrine and to get a big picture of it and then to fit David's own delight in this truth in our psalm. What is the doctrine? Well, unfortunately, we don't have our screen, so I can put this definition up there. There's two definitions that I think are the simplest and the clearest. Uh, so I'll just read them to you. The first is this. Uh, the providence of God is the conviction that God in his goodness and power preserves, accompanies, and directs the entire preservation of the universe. It is the doctrine of concurrence, which we've looked at, at in the past, and I'll, I'll briefly explain again, and the doctrine of God's governance, and that is him bringing everything to its appointed end. With that idea, listen to the second definition. God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that, number one, he keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. That's the idea of preservation. He upholds all things by the word of his power. Secondly, it means that God cooperates with created things in every action directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. We'll, we'll simplify that again a little bit later, but that's the idea of concurrence. And then thirdly, it is God's providence is that it directs them to fulfill his purposes. And that is again, of course, government, that he brings everything to its created end. That's the doctrine. Let me briefly explain it. Preservation. We looked at that in Psalm 104. It is the reality that every created thing is held together and sustained in its existence because of the active power and stepped back and because of these sort of independent natural laws that he has uh, put in place for it to act the way that it does. Know that God is actively personally involved in every molecule of his universe of holding it and causing it to function in the way that he designed it to function to fulfill his purpose that is the preservation of god this is a part of god's common grace his common grace and why is it a part of god's common grace it is a part of created realities that god by the very the fact that God is the source of all things, whatever thing exists, depends on him for its existence and it's being sustained in that existence, preserved in it. But why then would this also be attached to God's common grace? And it's attached to God's common grace, his preservation of all things, because of the reality of sin. Because of the reality of sin. Why 
does God, in light of the reality of man's fallenness, sustain and preserve everything as he does? It is because he made a promise. He made a promise. When sin entered into the world, he made a promise that he would ultimately overrule and defeat sin, that he would ultimately redeem man who was fallen. And in order to do that, man has to be exist and man has to be sustained in the world that God created them to live on. And so after God destroyed the world as a reminder and a warning that in fact he will bring a judgment and in fact that sin is man's greatest problem before a holy God. He did afterwards yet after preserving Noah and his family make a promise and he says I will not destroy things like this again. As long as long as the earth exists in its present form, we will have seasons, we will have rain, we will have all of those things necessary for us to live on this earth. Though man's heart after the flood is the same as it was before the flood. So in that sense, God's preserving the world for one purpose. When his work of redemption is completed, then he will destroy this present earth and bring in a new one. So God's preserving all things as a part of his providence fits under the bigger picture of God redeeming all things through his work in Christ. And when that work of redemption is completed, then he will, in fact, bring about the new heavens and the new earth. And all of those who are outside of his redeeming purposes will be judged. And all of those who are in Christ will be know the fullness of their salvation. Secondly, God's providence is his concurrence. And again, we talked about this under Psalm 104. Let me just remind you of it uh, this morning. Uh, God's concurrence speaks of God's providence as he works through secondary causes, secondary causes. So it is to say that God is the primary cause of all things and that he uses secondary causes, however, to accomplish his will. Now, this is obviously a very big topic. Um, but let me try to at least uh, illustrate this a bit and explain it uh, a little more clearly. To say that God is the primary force behind all things is to say that even for random events, even as we experience life in this world and there are things that seem to have little consequence or seem to have no divine power behind them, they are just the way that things are, Scripture points us back and reminds us that, no, in fact, God is behind even those details, even those things that seem inconsequential. Let me give you just a couple of examples. Obviously, many could be added to this, but in Proverbs 16.33, Solomon says this, that the lot is cast into the lap but it's every decision is from the Lord. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. That is to say, it would be if we were to put it in our contemporary circumstances, the rolling of the dice is uh, what we might do to see what happens. Uh, But what those dice actually land on is yet still under the providence of God. I think of that every time we play a game of Yahtzee or something else, and I can't get a full house or whatever and end up losing. I'm like, okay, Lord, this is a part of what you're doing uh, to humble me. Uh, And then one of the children uh, win, which they delight in. 
But it is to say that nothing is random. Even something that seems as insignificant and small as a rolling of the dice, or in this case, the casting of a lot. And of course, they would do those things very often to try to discern the will of God. And, and God did work through that at times. We see that even in the case of them choosing someone to replace Judas in Acts chapter 1. But the idea is that something that seems so random is yet under the sovereign hand of God. Let me give you just one other example that's uh, even a little more striking, and that comes out of 1 Kings chapter 22. Now, in 1 Kings chapter 22, God has, through a prophet, predicted and ordained, prophesied the death of the king of Israel, Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat actually didn't like to listen to this prophet because he always predicted what bad things. And so Jehoshaphat liked to surround himself with prophets who would tell him good things. And yet he recognized that this was a prophet of God. And this prophet of God, Micaiah, said that God was going to judge him for his sin. As a matter of fact, he said that the proof that I'm speaking of God is that you will be judged. In verse 28 of 1 Kings 22, Micaiah said, If you indeed return safely, the Lord has not spoken by me. They're going to go into battle. And Micah says, if you return from that battle, hey, I'm not a true prophet. But if you don't return from that battle, then you know that the word I've given to you is the word of God. It is the word of the Lord. So in verse 29, the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went up against Ramoth Gilead. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise, oh, excuse me, the king of Israel is not Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat is the king of uh, uh, Judah, forgive me. Uh, so the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went up against Ramoth Gilead. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into the battle. But you put on your robes. So the king of Israel disguised himself and went into the battle. Now the king of Aram had commanded the 32 captains of his chariot, saying, Do not fight with small or great, but with the king of Israel. In other words, they wanted to kill the king of Israel. The king of Israel, having received the word that he was going to die as an act of the judgment of God, nevertheless thought he would outsmart God, disguise himself going into this battle, and escape. What happened? So when the captains of the chariot saw Jehoshaphat, that is the king of Judah, they said, surely it is the king of Israel. He went with all his royal accoutrements. Uh, the king of Israel was hiding to try to blend in with the people. And so they said, surely this is the king of Israel. And they turned aside to fight against him. And Jehoshaphat cried out. And when the captains of the chariot saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. Ah! Oh, so the king of Israel then escaped. His plan worked, right? Because he deceived them and now he was going to get away. But what does he say? Verse 34. Now a certain man, so in all of this mayhem of battle, drew his bow, drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel in the joint of the army. There is a soldier randomly by human uh, measurements was taking his bow uh, pulled it back and let the arrow fly. He's not aiming for the king of Israel. He doesn't even know that it's the king of Israel. As a matter of fact, the impression that we get is he, he just did it saying, hey, the battle's over there. I'm just going to shoot my arrow over there somewhere. And what happened? That arrow hit God's target. God's target was the king of Israel. 
And so being hit in the joint of the armor, the second part of verse 34 says, so he said to the driver to his chariot, turn around and take me out of the fight for I am severely wounded. And of course, the king of Israel died. Again, this is the idea of concurrence is what's being illustrated here. There is the decision of the, the bowman to take his bow at that moment to take all of the skill that he had and apply it in the best way that he could to pull back his arrow. He aimed it according to whatever his own mind directed him. And, and yet in all of those events, through all of the actions of every individual in those events, God accomplished his purpose, even directing a single arrow to hit the exact spot in the armor of the king of Israel that would kill him. God was working through everything, everything about how much strength that particular person had, when he did it, where he aimed, the direction of the wind blowing, every conceivable detail of that event was under the sovereign hand of God. So it is to say then that God works through secondary causes. And this also uh, deals with the very rise and the fall of nations. Let me give you just one example here quickly, and then we'll move on. In Daniel chapter 4, or actually in Daniel chapter 2, you remember this is a statement of Daniel uh, praising God after God had given him an understanding of a dream that Nebuchadnezzar had had. Daniel said this, let the name of God, in verse 20, Daniel chapter 2, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epics. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. Why was Nebuchadnezzar king? Because God had, in all of the details of his life and birth and abilities and everything else, God had designed all of those circumstances to exalt him to the position of king. Why do kings fall and all the details behind that fall? Because God is behind every detail that goes to the downfall of a ruler. He says the same thing in Daniel chapter four. This is actually uh, the words of Nebuchadnezzar after he had regained his senses when God judged him, causing him to act like a, a dumb beast for his pride. Nebuchadnezzar said this, speaking of God, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will and the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? God was behind that. God was behind every detail of it. God was behind his insanity. God was behind the removal of his insanity. God was behind him being king. God could be behind him being deposed as king. God raises him up, back up as king. God is the one who is providentially working through all of these things. It means he providentially directs and works through the moral choices of fallen creatures. And although these are the most significant in their import, I'm only going to mention them. You're more familiar with them, and so we can move on. In Genesis chapter 50, you'll remember that Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. The, they did that because they were jealous of him, 
because of the favor that Joseph had in the eyes of his father and because of these dreams that Joseph really rather foolishly communicated to his brothers that they would all bow down to him one day and even their father would bow down to him. And you remember the story that he was sold into the land of Egypt. In the land of Egypt, he met both blessing and hardship. He went to Potiphar's house. He became significant in Potiphar's house. He was lied against by Potiphar's wife, ended up in prison, forgotten by the cupbearer and the baker of the king, and then eventually remembered and exalted to the most prominent position under Pharaoh in the land of Egypt. Later, his brothers came to him because of a famine in the land. And with a lot of details in between, they were eventually reunited and restored and Joseph with his family. And at the end of all of this account, actually for a second time here, but at the end of this account, the Joseph's brothers, when their father Jacob had died, were concerned that Joseph might turn on them now. But Joseph gives them a statement about his perspective of all of the events that had transpired. He says in verse 20, or in verse 19, he said to his brothers, Joseph said to them, do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil. That is, you made a moral choice. You made a moral decision that was evil. You treated me wrongly. You treated me outside of the will of God. You in every way treated me with evil intent. You mended against me. But again, that wasn't the ultimate force working behind these things. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. God was not the cause of their evil, but God was directing their evil, their real moral choices to accomplish his end. That is the idea of concurrence. And of course, that was ultimately true in the life of Christ. In Acts 4, all the Gentile world, the leaders of the Jewish world, or the leader of the Gentiles, the leader of the Jews, all of them together were working to bring about this most evil act in the history of the world, the crucifixion of the Son of God, the Messiah. And yet all of that happened, as the writer of Acts, Luke, tells us, according to the predetermined plan of God. Lastly, then, providence includes God's upholding all things, which he sustains until he accomplishes his purposes of redemption. Concurrence, it means that God is always working and active in the life of his creation and in the life of his people, causing all of the things he's made to fulfill ultimately his will, while never violating in terms of his image bearers, their moral responsibility and the realness of their choices. Thirdly, it is the government, the God's government. And that is to say in terms of God's providence that God is directing all things to his appointed end for creation. And that is to sum all things up under Christ. And of course, this fits with the big idea of the first point. That is that God is preserving it until he accomplishes his purpose. Listen to Paul's statement in Ephesians chapter one. He said, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to this kind intention which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heaven and things on earth. That's what he's doing. 
and his providence is working all things to that end. Don't turn there, I'll just mention it, but 1 Corinthians 15, 28, the, the, God is working all things to the end that they would be summed up under the feet of Christ so that when all of the kingdom promises and purposes of God and Christ are fulfilled, it says the son will take that kingdom and offer it back up to the father and God will be all in all. And that's where everything is headed. So that is in a very broad sense, the doctrine of providence. Now let's look at Psalm 139 and God's experience or David's experience of this and our response to the experience of this in our own lives. So providence says that God in his sovereign purposes is ruling over all that he has made, all that he has made. And for a believer, this is a great, great comfort. And so look at verse 13. How does this work itself out in an individual's life? Okay, we get the rise and fall of nations, we get kings, we get all of that kind of stuff. Okay, okay, I can understand that, but how does it work out in my own life? How does it work out in the life of me as an individual person who's not a king or who's not a, a nation and so on and so forth? He says in verse 13, you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. Verse 15, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. When did God's providence come into play in the life of David? in our lives at the very point of conception, at the very point of conception. God's active involvement in your life didn't begin at some point when you were saved. It didn't begin uh, at some point uh, in some big event of your life, although it is the biggest event of your life coming into existence, I guess we could say. It is to say that God's active concern and involvement and interest in us, even as individuals, began in that secret work of God when we were conceived in the womb of our mother. That means God was involved actively in the formation of every single cell that makes you who you are. It's a mystery. Writer of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, I would hold, says this in Ecclesiastes 11.5, just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of a pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. In other words, God is active in ways that we can't understand, in ways that we don't even know, even as he was actively forming all of the physical attributes of a person inside the mother's womb. So he is actively involved in all of our lives and all of the world accomplishing his purpose, whether we see it directly or not. So involvement with your life, God's involvement with your, with your life was fully acted, active at the very instant your physical being came into existence. And he uses, as he does in all of the Psalms and throughout this poetic language, and he describes it here as being skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. What does he mean by that? 
Well, there's two general ways that you could take that. One is to say that he's referring to God's formation of man out of the dust of the ground. And so the very formation of humanity, and, and he's looking at that just at the big picture of God forming man, male and female. Uh, it could also be, and I think is a better way, is a poetic way to speak of the secret work of God in forming each individual in the womb. In other words, the depths of the earth is meant to capture that hidden nature of it, the secret nature of it, uh, hid, as it were, from the eyes of men. As a matter of fact, in verse 15, he kind of brings that out. He says, when I was made in secret, nobody else knew what was going on, but God knew what was going on. Nobody else was seeing how all this stuff was working together, but God was. In fact, he was behind it, doing it. This is the secret working of God hidden from our eyes. Now, in one sense, however, we could say this. We could say that God was actively involved in your life in terms of his intention and his ultimate purposes for creation because you were in the mind of God. As a matter of fact, for the elect... He says he chose us in Christ before he created anything. So before the foundation of the world, in one sense, in, in the idea, in the sense of God being in God's mind, he was uh, actively involved with us in terms of his purpose and his intention. But when we speak of God's providence in here, more precisely, it is God's directive involvement in our life once we were actually brought into existence in here. That begins at conception, at the very moment of conception. Well, let's tease that out just a little bit of what that means and why that is a comfort to us. It means then that at the moment of conception, everything that would determine who you are, your uniqueness, your physical and uh, emotional attributes, your abilities, the circumstances into which you were born, everything about you were all set according to the purposes of God. Everything that was genetically true of you as an individual, everything that would be formed as the process of growth would take place in the womb was already determined at the point of conception. There was no added thing that would make you different than who you are. You were fully the individual that you would be at birth at the very point of conception in terms of all of the genetic information being there, everything being there that simply needed time to grow. Nothing is added or subtracted as the fetus forms in the womb. And, and as a side note here, it's important to remember that this is why those who support abortion, those who want to support killing a fetus in the womb, killing a child in the womb, have to do at all costs, this is have to deny the personhood of that fetus in the womb. That's why when you hear any of these uh, arguments, any of the, the talks that those who support that kind of murder would give, they never, never notice this, will refer to that fetus as a child or as a person, because as soon as they give to that fetus the status of personhood, it demolishes their whole argument. The only personhood that they will recognize is that of the mother, not of the fetus. But that's not how God looks at it. That's not even how common sense or medical science looks at it. 
That is fully a person and a child with everything that's going to make them unique and to live in this world at the very moment of conception. But again, back to us, what does that mean? That means this, that whatever blessings, whatever frustrations, whatever means of ease or means of difficulty that attend the characteristics of our personal circumstance, they are governed by God's purposes. Are you tall? Are you short? Are you white, black, brown, red, yellow? Are you athletic or are you not very athletic? Are you strong or are you weak? Are you artistic? Are you entrepreneurial? Are you seen? Are you blind? Are you whatever? That is a part of God's wonderful work of forming you in the womb. Whatever it is that makes up your distinct attributes are a part of God's providential and sovereign providence, providence in your life and his sovereign purposes for your life. Let me just give you a couple of examples of this stated explicitly. You'll remember that Moses, when he was called by God to go to the nation of Israel and to bring to them the word of God, Moses had, it's generally thought maybe he stuttered or whatever it was, but he had some physical attributes that made him feel ill-equipped to do what God was asking him to do. And so he says in Exodus 4, chapter 10, verse 10, Moses said to the Lord, please, Lord, I have never been eloquent. I've never been eloquent. He says, neither recently nor in time past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow or, or heavy of speech and of tongue. In other words, God, don't you see that I don't even speak very well? And that's the very thing that you're calling me to do. You must have made some mistake. And God says, no, I'm going to go with you and, and I'll be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. But Moses was persistent. And he says, no, Lord, please send whomever you will. Don't send me. And then the anger of the Lord burned against Moses. And he said, and he offered brother, his errand brother to go for him. But then he says this. Then he says this to him. He says that he will be with him. He will be with his mouth. He will be with him and he will give him the words to say and Aaron would come. And so God showed him mercy. But go back up, actually, if you will, again to verse 11. And what did the Lord say? He said, the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord, who do these things? Moses, I know full well when I'm calling you to do what I've called you to do, that you are weak, that you feel ill-equipped, that you are not what uh, the world would have expected for such a task. And God was merciful and helped it to meet his weaknesses. But God says, Moses, you're designed exactly as I designed you. If you're slow of tongue, why are you slow of tongue? It's because I made you slow of tongue. And in your weakness, my power is going to be revealed more wonderfully. Your dependence on me is going to be deeper. Moses, I'm the one who made you the way. You can trust that I will give you the grace to do what it is that I have called you to do. How about in John chapter 9? You'll remember this story. As he passed by, Jesus, he's, uh, Jesus is walking with his disciples. Jesus saw a man blind from birth. 
And his disciples asked, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? And Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was that the works of God might be displayed in him. In other words, God, while that blind man was being formed in the womb of his mother, was designing him in such a way that he would be born without sight. Why? Because God had determined that his lack of sight, and yes, that includes all of the difficulties that came with that throughout his life. That includes all of the frustrations that came with that throughout his life. That God had determined that his blindness would be a means of how he would glorify himself. God was absolutely in control of it. In other words, it's the same with us. That whatever we have that we might see as frustrations, I don't, I don't speak well enough. I'm not smart enough. I don't read well enough. I don't whatever. Those are a part of God's design. They, to be frustrated with that, to be despondent over that, is to be despondent with the work of God. Even in those things that are difficulties, even in those things that are challenges, even in those things that are in the mind of the world, weaknesses are, by God's purposes and design, his goodwill for our lives. And we can say with David in verse 14, even still, I am fearfully and wonderfully made and wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. That is then to declare this, that each person in God's eyes has the dignity of being a human being who bears the image of God. Each person has the dignity of being a human being. That means the blind person, the autistic person, the crippled person, the beautiful person, the smart person, the weak person, the strong person, the popular person, the forgotten person. Every person is made in the image of God and bears a dignity that comes with that status and is in the class of humanity for which Christ died. But I, there's an important note here, however, is when, when David declares here that I am fearfully and wonderfully made, and we, we hear that uh, you know, mentioned uh, a lot of times, we are fearfully and wonderfully made, it is true. But sometimes that statement is used and taken out of context, as sometimes scriptures people are want to do with scripture. And it's taken out of context, not to point inwardly to ourselves and to say that we're going to sit around and then marvel at our own wonderfulness and our own, in our own amazingness and our own uniqueness is that that is the thing that makes us so special is us. Look at how, look at how important we are that God would die for us. That makes the great wonder of the gospel, us, not Christ who is the glory of God, who is the eternal son of God, who died for us. We sometimes want to marvel at our own uniqueness and think of how God, how pleased God is with the wonder of us, but it's just the opposite. The point here is to point to God, to point away from us, upward to God, and to marvel in his work, to marvel in his wisdom, to marvel in his power, to marvel in his glory, and to realize that the glory of God that he has given to us through this wonderful work is also our responsibility to live for and reflect his glory. 
So to say here that I am fearfully and wonderfully made is to acknowledge the glory and the wonder of God's work, the glory and the wonder of God's wisdom. And when we fully embrace this, and I understand this can be hard for some who struggle and have difficulties in life that, that I haven't had and many, many others haven't had. But it is true that that as we understand the purposes of God and the goodness of God, that even in those difficulties, we can say somehow, even in my weakness before the world's eyes, even in my difficulties and struggles, even in those things that seem to be against me, God is exercising his will for me and to me. And I bear his image and whatever troubles that I may have for a moment, whatever whatever difficulties I may have for a season and for a time, and maybe even this life, they are only for a season. And in the end, I'll understand how they fit into the picture of God's good purposes for my life. And I can delight that whatever I have was not by accident. It wasn't a freak of nature. It wasn't some, it wasn't some bad luck. It was the purposes and is the purposes of God for my life. And he can be glorified in it through you. He can be glorified. But it involves not merely just our physical frame and our physical attributes of us, but look at what else he says in verse 16. It involves every detail of our lives. And this is amazing. In verse 16, you in your book were written, all the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. You didn't merely design the physical attributes that I possessed, but you designed every other part of my life that has shaped and formed me and molded me and made me the you, the person that I am today. That's given me the opportunities that I've had. That's given me the frustrations that I've had and the disappointments that I've had, as well as the blessings that I've had and the mercies that I've had and the disciplines that I've had, the things given and the things withheld. All of that is a part of God's purposes for your life. This is actually a fascinating word here that he uses for or, uh, ordained. You have ordained them. It has the idea of forming. And, and interestingly, just give you a couple of uses to illustrate this point. It is the term that's used when it says that God, out of the dust of the earth in Genesis chapter 2, formed man, formed Adam. He shaped him. He molded him. He made him to be the very person that God wanted him to be. He formed him out of the dust of the ground. We won't turn there, but in 2 Kings 19.25, you can write it down. The term is translated as planned. And there he's talking about God's plans for the nation of Israel. Everything that was happening were part of the circumstances and the realities that God formed because of his purposes for them as a nation. And in this context, it means not merely... The duration, in other words, you don't know, God doesn't merely know how long we're going to be alive, but the entire complex of events that make up our life, David's life, our lives, were planned, fashioned, and ordained before we drew our first breath. God had it settled in his divine and eternal purposes. Listen to Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. Now the word of the Lord came to me, this is Jeremiah speaking, and he says this, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you, and I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. He says, don't say I'm a youth, 
Because God says, I'll be with you wherever you go. And what I command in verse 7, you shall speak. Jeremiah finds comfort in this reality. That even as he was being formed in the womb of his mother, all of the attributes and the necessary circumstances to make him a prophet of God, to fulfill God's purposes for him, were already set. God was in control. In other words, Jeremiah, I have formed you even from the point of conception to do this task on which I'm sending you. Therefore, go and know that I will be with you. Consider this. Consider Galatians 1. And again, you don't have to turn there. Even in Paul's life, he said the same thing. And then let's consider this. Paul's describing his own call to the ministry, his own call to Christ. But he says this in verse 15, Galatians 1.15. And he had just talked about his life as a Pharisee and his zealous life as a Pharisee. And then he says this. He says in verse 15, but when God who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Consider that. That means that God had appointed Paul to be an apostle to the Gentiles. That means all of Paul's education, all of God, Paul's experiences, all of Paul's personality, all of Paul's intellect, all of Paul's religious commitments and zeal, even all of Paul's sin, all of Paul putting to death Christians and persecuting them as one of the early forces of persecution against the church were all part of God's design to mold him and make him an apostle to the Gentiles. As a matter of fact, in 1 Timothy, where Paul, where God talks, where Paul talks about his testimony, he says that God holds him up as an example to everyone that none are beyond the mercy of God. That means, yes, even Paul's sin as a persecutor and killer and murderer of Christians was a part of God's big picture providence in his life to make him who he wanted him to be. Paul would not have been the apostle to the Gentiles that he was had he had not had those experiences. Did he, had he not had his intellect, had he had not had his training and experiences, his family that he grew up in and everything, where he grew up, in every detail, God was involved. And that's actually a glorious truth as a part of the writing of Scripture. When these men wrote... They wrote, moved along by the Holy Spirit. And that means every writer of scripture was designed by God perfectly in every detail. So that when they wrote and the Holy Spirit carried them along, there is in this glorious, mysterious sense, man writing, Paul writing, Luke writing, and John writing, and so on and so forth. And yet writing exactly what God wanted them to write so that their words could be said to be the words of God. Listen to how one person says this. There is a sense in which the person shaping in the womb also determines the person's life. It decides how clever they are, how strong they are, what weaknesses they have, and so on, and how long they will live. Environmental factors and personal decisions making, personal decision making enter into the outworking of this, but they cannot evade the constraints of what goes on before birth. In this sense, what we are and how long we live are pre determined predetermined now it's important to note this is not determinism what do i mean by that 
It means it is not determinism which would hold that all of our decisions then don't make any difference. All, everything about, it doesn't make any difference. God's going to do what he's going to do. And so that's it. That's, that's, uh, it doesn't matter. I have, and then and that's just a kind of futility then about my, all of my desires and wants and decisions because God's either going to do it or not do it. It's already been planned. God already knows all things. Well, it is true that God knows all things, but understand this, that God's knowledge of events is not the cause of individual moral choices. God's knowledge of those choices is not the cause of those choices. Even God's directing those choices is not the cause of those choices. Scripture never speaks that way. We are moral beings who have real desires, who make real decisions off of those desires and have real consequences of the, after the, of, uh, from the decisions that we make. It's a mystery. But it's also true that whoever sows to the flesh reaps from the flesh. Whoever sows from the, to the spirit reaps from the spirit. We are not robots. It's a mystery to us, and yet it is fully, it is fully consistent with God's accounting for his working in our lives. We make choices. Men make choices. Men have consequences from those choices, and yet God in those choices is also working out his sovereign will for our lives, providentially. This could be a, two quick examples. Proverbs 16, 9. The mind of man plans his way. Can you finish it? But the Lord directs his steps. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And we live under the comfort of that reality of God's providence in our lives. It's a comfort when we think rightly about it. In James 4, he says this, he says, come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. God does. As a matter of fact, he's directing it. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. In other words, when we go, we realize that we go with all of our plans, with all of our intentions, with all of our resources, with all of our abilities, with all of our planning. We go knowing that God is the one who's directing everything about our going. You have a business venture. You do all that you need to do to be responsible, to make it successful. But the Christian recognizes God is the one behind the success or the lack of success. Your education, your plans for your family, whatever it is, we make plans. But to understand this means that all of my plans are submitted to God's sovereign purposes and will for my life. Our friends, our school, all our, our opportunities, our lack of opportunities, again, are all under the sovereign hand of God. And that is, for a believer, a great comfort. But there's something significant here as well. It's not only the details of our lives, but it, and, it's, and it's not only the, the length of our lives, it's the details of our lives, but it's not less than the length of our lives. Even how long we live is under the sovereign hand of God. Look again at verse 16. The days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. This serves as both a warning or a warning as well as a comfort, a humbling comfort. It serves as a warning in this way. It serves as a warning to all who would trust in their own efforts. All who would trust in their own efforts. 
to keep them safe and secure and alive. The outcome of your life is according to God's purpose. Listen to what Jonathan Edwards said so long ago. And this is the warning part. He said this. He said, it is no security to wicked man for one moment that there are no visible means of death at hand. It is no security to a natural man that he is now in health and that they and, and, and he don't see which way he should now immediately go out of the world by any accident and that there is no visible danger in any respect in his circumstances. The manifold and continual experience of the world in all ages shows that this is no evidence that a man is not on the very brink of eternity and that the next step won't be into another world. The unseen, unthought of ways and means of persons going suddenly out of the world are innumerable and inconceivable. Unconverted men walk over the pit of hell on a rotten covering. And there are innumerable places in this covering so weak that they won't bear their weight. And these places are not seen. He goes on. God has so many different unsearchable ways of taking wicked men out of the world and sending them to hell that there is nothing to me, to me that, or that makes it appear that God has need at the expense of a miracle or to go out of the ordinary course of his providence to destroy any wicked man at any moment. People go to the gym. They exercise, and we should do that to take care of ourselves, absolutely. But to put our hope in that is a false hope. God's providence is determined. You could be in the middle of a battlefield, and you are not any more or less safe in an ultimate providential sense than if you were walking across the street in a quiet neighborhood. If God has determined that day to be your last day, then it will be. You'll be hit by a stray bullet or a car or have a extreme medical event, or you could be in war and be protected from bullets flying all around because God still has a purpose for you. I always think an example of this is uh, when I was in California working, uh, this for some reason always stood out, stands out in my mind. There was a young man uh, who was, uh, I worked in the studio, so he was a location scout. He was young, kind of just getting into it. And he would, he was one who'd go out and find locations for them to, to shoot stuff. And so I had met him and uh, and it was interesting. I met him, and I and uh, I had just met him. I think this day that I'm remembering, uh, and I had prayed for him, and I didn't have a chance to witness to him. But that's part of what I was praying for, is I would interact with him more. And that was on a Friday, and I remember it was on a it was on a Friday, and on Monday we came back and heard news of his death, and the circumstances were. I mean, he was in his probably mid twenties or so. And he had gone to a music store and him with a friend, and they. Uh, split up and then they were going to meet back later and when this friend came back to meet him there was a crowd around in an ambulance and such and it was his friend and this person this young promising you know future guy uh, had a brain aneurysm in the middle of a music store and died uh, nearly instantly before he got to the hospital and you know we think of that like that sounds like a, a little sermon you know okay he's fear-mongering but I imagined myself many times, what if I would have had that opportunity to speak to him? And I would have said to that person, you know, your life isn't certain. God could take your life. So as you hear these things and you hear of the work of Christ and you and you hear of the promise of forgiveness, uh, you need to consider that now because your life is uncertain. Uh, no doubt, as it is with many, the thought would have been, yeah, whatever, I'm fine. You know what? whatever, I'll worry about that later. It's not a real concern, right? I'm gonna die, I'm a healthy young guy, right? He did, 
He did. And he stood before God that day or the next day. It was on a Saturday that he died. And so it is a warning for all men to realize that you don't uphold your life. You don't uphold your days. And all that you do doesn't add one thing to it. It doesn't change God's purposes and intents for your life one moment. But for, as a comfort for a believer, that is not a warning, but a comfort. Because we know that we're always safe in God's hands. And so David, taking that same truth, could say this in Psalm 27, 1 through 3. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. And though war rise against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. Why? Because my life is in God's hands. He knows the days that were ordained for me before there was one of them. I won't die a day before God ordained that I would die, and I won't live a day longer than God ordained that I should live. This obviously does not excuse foolish living and those kind of things, but it is to say that at the end of the day, even that is included in God's ultimate purposes. Well, we do need to wrap this up. The encouragement here then is that as we think about our lives, we think about it in light of God's purposes, in light of God's involvement, in light of the certainty of God's goodness to us, even in our trials. And let's just look at that then on the last part here, that last part. He says, how precious are your thoughts to me, O God, and how vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. I am still with you. We can have full confidence that God will never leave us, forsake us. And our trust in that is the rest that we can find in it. Listen to what one person said along these lines. Even those who profess to accept without, with question, without question the truth of divine sovereignty are not infrequently guilty of practical unbelief. Glibly to assert that all things work together for good to them that love God is relatively easy. But to believe this when our circumstances are distasteful and appear likely to deteriorate is evidence of a spiritual apprehension of the sovereignty of God. It's one thing when things are going well and we hear a sermon to say, yes, God causes all things to work together for good. Isn't that wonderful? It's another thing when we've been rejected by our friends, when we failed in something that was very important to us, when the circumstances of our lives go in a very different direction than what we ever planned on them being, when there's hurt and pain that comes into our life that we were taken off guard by. To in those moments have a kind of trust in the sovereign hand of God is to say that these are the days that God ordained for me. These are the circumstances that God ordained for me. And I will trust them because I can believe that God is working good in them. He is shaping me and molding me to the image of Christ. He is shaping and preparing my soul for my future reward when I am with him. That is faith. That's maturity. 
And, this, and the sign of spiritual maturity is when, not when we can down the road look back and say, oh, I see that God was causing that for good. But in the midst of the tragedy itself, immediately have a sole response to the circumstances to say that God is good now. In this moment, this is not random. I can trust him and I will trust him. And he will be my refuge in the midst of my trouble. That is the comfort that this brings to us. And that we can, no matter what, as David says here, know that God's thoughts towards me, God's attention, God's active concern and involvement in my life is never, is, is beyond what I can even fathom. And so I can know that when I sleep and when I awake, I am still with you. I'm still with you. This is the real experience of God in the heart of a believer, one that we need to mature in and grow in, but it is our greatest comfort. To deny the sovereignty of God and to treat that we recognize God's presence only in times of ease or comfort when we get what I want and we don't equally worship him in trial is sin and unbelief. Just as it means then this, and this is an encouragement, that the last thought that you should have before bed should be a spirit of communion with the Lord. The first thought when you awake should be a spirit of communion with the Lord in prayer. God is there. It means, as Paul said, when all abandoned him, that the Lord stood with him in 2 Timothy 4. It means that when difficulties arise, God's presence and providence sustains in Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you and forsake you. And it means that even when there's death and tragedy and suffering in this life, nothing will separate us from the intense love of God in Christ. Romans 8, 32. And with that, I end. Romans 8, 32. The, uh, the last part, the working out of that promise that God will cause all things to work together for good is not about the success we have in life, but it is about being put to death all day long, considered a sheep to be slaughtered. It is about the suffering of God's people. But then he says, and he, with this I end, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing will be able to separate us. Our lives are securely in his hand, and as believers in Christ, our lives are securely in the hand of him who has redeemed us, who has reconciled us, whose love to us as a father and as a savior and a creator and our God is unfailing and certain. And we can take rest in him and his sovereign purposes. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this promise of your word. Help us to be, even as that, even as that one author reminded us, these are not truths that are checked off on a doctrinal check sheet to make sure we believe the right things. They are not truths that are merely easily confessed in times of ease, but they are the truth about you and our relationship with you that carries us through life that guides and directs us through life, that provides comfort to our soul, a refuge to us, that gives us direction and hope and peace and confidence and certainty in an uncertain world. And it assures us that 
even as we're reminded at the end that nothing can separate us from your love for us in Christ Jesus. And as you have called us before you created anything, as you called us in time according to your sovereign purposes, as you sustain and uphold us in this life, you also will, by your providence, good providence, lead us to our final destination in our home, which is to be with you forever in our new and resurrected bodies. Thank you. Thank you for your word and your promises. Help us to live securely in them. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Okay.